Well, good morning again. We are in week four of our emotions series, and so far we have talked about worry. We've talked about loneliness. Last week, a guest speaker talked to us about fear, and this morning we're talking about anger, and you're probably thinking, are there any good emotions that we're going to talk about at any point? And next Sunday, which is Mother's Day, which is a special Sunday, and we'll have some special things next Sunday, we are going to end our series on emotions by talking about gratitude, so a good emotion. But this morning, not such, good, not such a good one. We're going to talk about anger. You know, anger shows up in our lives in lots of different ways. Some people, when you're angry, everybody knows. Uh, you're loud, you raise your voice, you scream, uh, you rearrange things maybe in your proximity. Um, some of you, when you're angry, it's harder to tell. You withdraw, you get quiet, you kind of pull within yourself. And both types of people think that the other way is the wrong way to be angry, but the truth is, is that both ways can be dangerous. And, you know, anger, one thing that has to be said up front about anger is that the Bible teaches that anger itself is not a sin. However, in our anger, we often do sin. And so uh, anger is something we need to understand. And, and we're actually going to learn this morning from a man in the Old Testament named Jonah. Jonah was a, a prophet of God. And uh, if you're familiar with this story, uh, you know this is one of those stories that you, the kids loved hearing about back in Sunday school and children's church because it was just like this crazy, exciting story about this man named Jonah. The summary is this. God comes to Jonah, who is a prophet. Prophet means he's supposed to speak for God. And God comes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh are the enemies or one of the enemies of God's people. Go to Nineveh and preach to them and tell them to repent. And Jonah very promptly says, no, thank you. And he heads in the absolute opposite direction, gets on a boat headed to Tarshish. And while it's on that boat, that God appoints a storm and hurls a storm towards this boat, causing this boat to be uh, at the verge of sinking. And through a series of conversations, the sailors realize the reason there's a storm is because of Jonah. And so they throw Jonah into the sea, and God appoints a big fish, and this big fish comes and swallows Jonah, and Jonah's in the belly of this large fish for three days and three nights, and in that uh, place, he says a prayer, and the Lord causes the fish to spit Jonah back up out, and the Lord comes to Jonah with the same commandment a second time, go to Nineveh and tell them that 40 days and then repentance, or then destruction. And so Jonah, this time, he obeys. He walks into Nineveh, and for three days, he walks through the city of Nineveh, and he's, all he says, 40 days and then destruction, 40 days and then destruction, and the whole city repents. It's amazing. It's not even a good sermon. <laughs> and, and, and it works. And they repent. And verse 10 of Jonah chapter 3 says this, when God saw what they did, when he saw that the people of Nineveh, Nineveh repented, how they had turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, there should be a verse 11 in chapter 3, and it should read like this. And Jonah rejoiced greatly in the mercy and kindness of God. He skipped all the way back home, and they all lived happily ever after the end. But the verse isn't in our Bible. In fact, we have a whole other chapter. And we really shouldn't have another chapter. The story should have ended here. Why do we have Jonah chapter 4? The reason why we have Jonah chapter 4 is because this story isn't about a big storm, it's not about a big fish, and it's not about the big bad Ninevites. This story is about a big God with a big heart for bad people. 
and the surprising ways in which bad people respond to the big heart of God. Both the way the Ninevites responded was surprising, and we're going to see that the way that Jonah responds is surprising. So let's pick up the story in the chapter that shouldn't be here. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 begins this way. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So Jonah is saying back to God his character, but he's not praising him for it. He's actually holding it up as a complaint. This is my problem with you, God. You're gracious, you're kind, you're compassionate. The irony being that he just was forgiven while in the fish, right? But he can't see what's happening here. And what we learn is the ultimate plot twist in the book of Jonah, that when Jonah said no in Jonah chapter 1, our initial guess is, well, he's probably afraid because the Ninevites were big and they were bad and they were enemies. And Jonah's thinking, me alone to Nineveh? If I go there and they don't like me, they're going to surely kill me. So we kind of assume Jonah didn't want to go because he didn't, he, his fear was that the plan would not work. But then when we get to this chapter, we realize Jonah's fear was not that the plan would not work. Jonah's fear was that the plan would work. And he didn't want to see the people of Nineveh forgiven. Verse 3, he goes on to say, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to him, and this is a good question for us all to hear the Lord asking us at times, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah's kind of hoping that this is all going to go south. Now the Lord appointed, I want you to see how sovereign God he is, how many times the word appointed shows up. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. This is the Middle East. It's hot. It's a desert. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. The same adverb here. He was exceedingly glad of the plant, just like he was exceedingly mad about the Ninevites. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. For the second time, he's saying, I'd rather die than live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So this morning, we're going to learn three things about anger. We're going to learn about the disguise of anger. We're going to learn about the danger of anger. And then lastly, the death of anger. So the disguise of anger. Earlier this week, uh, I got new glasses. I haven't got new glasses in like 20 years I wear contacts all the time. My, my, my glasses from 20 years ago, they're embarrassing. I wouldn't wear them in public. Fashion has changed. And so I would only wear them late at night when my eyes began to bother me. But as I get older, I was thinking, I need to, I need to get a better pair of glasses that I'm not embarrassed to wear in public so that, so that I can give my eyes a day off every now and then. I'll wear them some someday, I'll, Sunday. I'll break them in. But, but earlier this week, I text, the first day I wore them to the office, I text the team. And I said, hey, uh, when you walk in, it's me. It's me. 
<laughs> Don't be nervous. I'm just wearing glasses. Because I've seen Superman. Like, you know, I, I, I know how effective a pair of glasses can be in masking somebody's identity. So I jokingly text him. I said, it's still me. Don't get nervous. It's not a stranger. I'm just wearing glasses. It's a disguise. Anger is a disguise. And there's three things that anger disguises. And the first thing that anger disguises is what's called primary emotions, primary emotions. So I, I, I learned a little bit this week studying anger. And one of the things that I learned is this, is that anger is, by psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists and experts, is, it's often referred to as a secondary emotion, secondary. It doesn't mean it's less important. It just means it never shows up alone. Anger doesn't show up in a vacuum. In fact, the vast majority of the time, anger is a response to other emotions that we're already feeling primary emotions. In other words, there's emotions beneath our anger that are primary, but anger is the secondary emotion. So when we think about Jonah, Jonah says he's angry and he's, he is angry, but if his anger is a secondary emotion, what is his primary emotion? What is he feeling that's making him angry? And what I think he's feeling, and we'll talk about this a little bit more under our second point, I think he's feeling disappointment. He's disappointed. He's frustrated. This isn't going the way he thought it would go. And he's also feeling a form of grief, loss of what he thought was right and wrong. He's feeling these things, but it's showing up as anger. So anger is a secondary emotion. What are some of the primary emotions under anger? Fear, loss, sadness, uncertainty, embarrassment, frustration, depression, disappointment, and discouragement. Those are often right underneath our anger. And what this means for us this morning is this. If you struggle with your anger, whether you're loud or quiet, whether you scream or seethe, if you struggle with your anger, it's not simply enough to admit you're angry sometimes, nor is it enough to try to work on your anger because the anger is actually not always the root cause of what's happening in that moment. It'd be like walking around for a week with a really bad headache and someone says, what are you doing about it? I'm, I'm working on my headache. I'm trying to make my headache go away. You can't. You have to understand what is the source of the pain. There is another emotion that you need to name. Anger often disguises that. And until we're able to name the main emotion, we can't really get better. I was having a conversation a few months ago with a pastor friend and his wife. His wife is a clinician. She's a therapist, and she's very good at her job. And we were processing some stuff, and I said to them, I said, you know, I was reflecting on the last three years of life since really the pandemic and on. And I said, you know, these last three years have been probably the hardest years of leadership in my life, the most challenging years. And, I, and the way I said the sentence was, I feel like these last three years have been the hardest years of leadership that I've ever experienced. That's how I feel. And she pointed out something to me. She kind of put her therapist hat on for a minute and said, can I, can I say something to you? And she said, um, you started your sentence with the word, I feel but you ended it with something other than an emotion. And she said, when I hear that, this is what I know. What you just said is not a feeling, it's a thought. So if you're going to start a sentence with saying, I feel something, the sentence needs to end with an emotion. But when I said, I feel like the last three years have been the hardest years of leadership in my life, she said, what you need to do if you really want to deal with the issue is you need to go back and re-say the sentence this way. I think, or I have observed, or my conclusion is, that the last three years of my life have been the hardest years of leadership, therefore I feel fill in the blank. 
And she said, until you do that, you're just, you're, you're masking your thoughts as feelings and you're not dealing with your actual feelings. So I think these years were difficult. How does it make me feel? Now, in a similar way, when someone asks you, why do you get angry or why are you angry? Usually we answer by giving some sort of observation or conclusion. I'm angry because they said that. I'm angry because they did this. I'm angry because of this outcome. And in the same way, it's not as helpful as you think because if we're really gonna get to the root of our anger and get past the disguise of anger, we actually have to finish those sentences like this. I'm angry because I also feel this way. So I'm angry because I feel disappointed. I'm angry because I feel sad. You have to be able to name the emotion that is being disguised by your anger. Otherwise, you can't deal with the root cause. Does that make sense? It's it's been very helpful for me recently in processing some of my own anger and some of my own issues. Anger disguises primary emotion. Secondly, anger disguises unprocessed grief. Grief doesn't go away. It just changes form. We can ignore it. We can avoid it. We can try and rush through it but it will show up later. It's like if I have a bucket full of marshmallows in front of me and there's all that sugar in that marsh- those marshmallows and I start eat. I don't even like marshmallows, by the way, but I start, eat- I start eating marshmallows and it looks like the sugar's going away, but is the sugar going away? No, it's not going away. It's just changing forms. It's turning me into a marshmallow, right? That's, that's essentially what's happening. And anger is the same way, or sorry, grief is the same way. Grief never goes away. It just changes forms when we do not resolve and walk through it in healthy ways. And one of the primary ways that grief shows back up in our lives is as anger. That's my experience anyway. We must be willing to grieve anything and everything we lose in life. We're usually obvious about the big losses in life, and we try to grieve those things. In fact, as you know, next Sunday is Mother's Day, but this Sunday, maybe you didn't know this, I learned this, next, this Sunday is Bereaved Mother's Day, which is a day that is set aside to remember, to pray for, and to be thoughtful for moms who have lost children. Those are big, big, big losses, right? And we feel those, and we grieve those, and we walk through those. But we also have to be able to grieve the small losses in life. I think, this is just my opinion, I think one of the reasons our world is increasingly angry and agitated since the pandemic uh, is because we lost a lot during that year, and we've not grieved it. We've not named the things that we've lost. Kids lost a year of school, Kids, or normal school, I should say. Kids lost, some kids lost a season of sports. Some people lost the opportunity to be with family at times where they really wanted to be with family. That's loss. So loss, whether it's obvious and big or whether it's just the small loss of an opportunity or the loss of a hope or the loss of a dream, if we don't know how to grieve those things, they're going to show up in our lives. Maybe not as anger for you. Maybe it will be apathy for you. Maybe it will be something else, but it will show up again, and often it is anger. So how do we grieve well? Just four approaches to grieving that have helped me throughout time, and they all start the letter C, so maybe this will be memorable for you, or you can write this down. Um, one way to approach grieving or to walk through grieving in a healthy way is, is the word conversational. 
to talk. How many of you in the room, you are a verbal processor? We're the verbal processors in the room. Uh, yeah, so not as many as I thought, but verbal processors. Here's how you know you're a verbal pro- I'm a verbal processor. Here's how you know you're a verbal processor. You, you learn stuff about yourself when you're talking. <laughs> you'll say things, and, you, uh, and then you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's actually how I feel. But I didn't know until I just said it out loud, right? That's a verbal processor. Some of you are like, that's terrifying. What is it like? It's very scary at times. But uh, so for some people, it's, it's verbally, com- and if this is you and you got to grieve things conversationally, you, you need to talk to a professional, a therapist, a friend. Some, you got to find safe spaces to talk things through. Other people on the other end of the spectrum, all the introverts in the room, you're more contemplative. You need time to think things through. You need to process things internally. Maybe journaling is helpful for you, but you have to commit yourself to that. And then the other two words are creative, which means sometimes the way we grieve is we, we, in our grief, we make something. I've seen this a lot with teenagers. When they lose a friend, they often want to make a poster or make a card or do something creative, write a song, write a poem, but it's part of their grieving. And then other people, the fourth word is constructive. They want to do something that they think will be helpful. So we, years ago, I, I, I did the funeral of a little girl who was killed by a drunk driver, and her mom, on the heels of that, started an organization, a cause to raise funds uh, about that specific issue of drunk driving. It was constructive for her. It was helpful for her. But whatever it is, resolving grief is necessary because if you don't deal with your grief, your grief will deal with you eventually. Resolving grief is not the same as ignoring it or eliminating it, pretending it doesn't exist, or even losing yourself in it. It requires a healthy approach. Now, the biblical term for healthy grief is the word lament. And lament means to embrace two tensions at the exact same time fully. It's not 50-50, 100% this and 100% this. You 100% embrace the truth that things are not as they should be. There's a brokenness in our hearts and in this world. And you embrace that truth and you speak it. It's not a lack of faith. It's an understanding of where we are in redemptive history. Things are not as they should be. That's part of lament, but that's only part of it. If you only do that, you're going to lose yourself in it. The other part of lament is to not just embrace that things are not as they should be, but to embrace the truth that things are not as they always will be. And someday, every sad thing will come untrue, and everything will be made right. And when we can lament in that way and hold together these two truths, things are not as they should be, things are not as they will always be, what we'll find ourselves do is we'll be able to pray our tears and pray our fears to the Father and bring them to him and lay them at his feet. Anger often disguises unprocessed grief. And then the third thing that anger disguises is dominating desires. Dominating desires. When we have an over-desire for something and it's lost. Uh, Whatever we love most has control of our heart. So when what we love most is under threat, maybe it's security, maybe it's significance, maybe it's stability, maybe it's health, maybe it's the well-being of family, maybe it's peace in our home. These are not bad things, these are good things. But when these things that we love most, when they become a dominating desire, when they're under threat, when they're kept from us or when we are kept from them, we often respond with despair or with anger. You know, this, it's amazing with children how, how children can bring this out of us so quickly. And I've, 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 I've done some work in my own heart. Why does it bother me so much when my kids disobey me, right? Now, the answer might seem obvious, but I've had to actually say, what is there in my heart a dominating desire that's being challenged 
that's causing me to respond to their disobedience in a way that is not corrective but is punitive and unhelpful? In what ways is their disobedience more about me than about them? And is my punishment more about me than about them? This is real deal stuff when you're parenting or you got grandkids around you or any, right? So here's what I've learned. I, at times in my life, have a dominating desire to control things. And when my kid, whether they're two or 20, I don't have a 20-year-old, by the way, whether they're, whether they're I just want to clarify that, whether they're two or 20, they, when they say no, to, I mean, it could be a two-year-old toddler looking me in the face going, no. I'll tell you what, when I all of a sudden feel like I cannot control that child and I have a dominating desire to control people and things and outcomes, I find anger and I find sin in my anger. So anger often, beneath our anger often is a dominating desire. So here's what we do. When you think back at what makes me angriest, when do I get most angry most quickly, you have to do the hard work of saying, what do I want in that moment that I feel like I'm not getting? What's being threatened in that moment? And then say, do I love, trust, and treasure that thing more than Jesus? Does it have more control over my emotional well-being than what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done? Which brings us to our second point this morning, which is the danger of anger. In verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, it, di- it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Here's the literal translation of that verse in the Hebrew. It was evil to Jonah with great evil. Evil evil. And the same Hebrew word for evil that's used to describe Jonah here is used to describe the Ninevites in chapter 3. In other words, we get to the end of this story and we go, oh my goodness, the problem's not just the Ninevites, the problem is Jonah. Jonah's got evil in his heart too. Well, what was the primary evil in the hearts of the Ninevites? They didn't serve the one true God. They loved other gods. They were idolaters. But not Jonah, right? I mean, he's a prophet of the one true God. He speaks for God. Surely he's not an idolater. Certainly he doesn't have other gods. For sure he treasures Yahweh above all other things. But we know he doesn't, and here's how we know, and this is the clue. It's the phrase in Jonah chapter 4 that shows up two times, where Jonah says, it's better if I die than I live. And any time you sense that in your own heart, that I would rather die than live in a world that's like this, You've discovered what your real treasure is. Here's what you're saying. I can't live in a world where what I treasure most is not mine, where what I treasure most is not here. Now, what did Jonah treasure most? And remember, there's two times in Jonah 4 that he says, I'd rather die than live. The first time is after the Ninevites repent. And I think in that moment, I'm guessing a little bit, but I think in that moment, what he treasured most was his own personal sense of right and wrong, justice. He's so upset that God would forgive these wicked people Now, it's easy for us to go, what's wrong with you, Jonah? But you have to realize the Ninevites have done significant harm to the Israelites. There is a history of violence between these two people. And so Jonah doesn't want them to receive forgiveness, grace, and mercy. And so why he wants to die in that moment is because he's saying, God, if I got to live in a world where those people can be right, I don't want to live in that world. If I got to live in a world where you're going to forgive people who have hurt me, I don't want to live in that world. And what he treasures most is his sense of justice and his sense of righteousness. But the second time he gets angry to die is when, is, is when the plant is gone. And you got sweaty, sweaty Jonah in the desert wanting to die again. What does he want this time? I think it's his, it's his comfort. He's lost his comfort. 
But in both times, if I was going to summarize both of these into one phrase, here's what he treasures most. And I think you and I can relate to this uh, a scary amount. <laughs> here's, what he, here's what he treasures most. Life going his way. Life going his way. And when life isn't going his way according to his rules and his expectations, here's what anger does to him. It makes him want to die. It actually makes him say, I'd rather die than live in a world like this. And the danger of anger is not just in how it determines the way we live, although it does. The danger of anger is in how it determines why we are willing to die, what we would want to die for. This is how dangerous anger is. You can get so angry that you say, I'd rather not even live in this world. So what do we do? This brings us to our last point. So the disguise of anger, the danger of anger, the death of anger. How, how, how does anger die in us instead of thrive? And there's two truths that we have to be able to believe at the same time. And we see them in the end of this story. So let's go back to Jonah 4 and read the last two verses. When we left off, Jonah was like, I'm angry. I'm angry enough to die. And I want you to see what the Lord says to him. Verse 10. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. He's saying, Jonah, you didn't even plant the plant. You had nothing to do with this plant. And yet, look at you. You want to die because it's not here anymore. Nor did you make it grow. This plant which came into being in a night and perished in a night. He's saying, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow, and yet you're going to die over this thing? And then he leaves Jonah with this question, and should not I pity, or the other word that we could use here is have compassion. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, this great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And then the story ends. And it's a cliffhanger. And we're like, this is not a good ending. There's no resolution here. But there's a reason why the book ends this way. Because the question's not just for Jonah. The question's for you and me. What are we going to do when life doesn't go our way? What are we going to do when the God we serve doesn't fit in the boxes we've created for him? What are we going to do when God's heart for bad people is bigger than our heart? What do we do? And so the, the story just ends and the question just hangs and we're supposed to sit here and wrestle with it and that's what we're doing this morning. So what are the two things that we have to believe? I'm going to ask Pastor Antonia to join me up here. What are the two things that we have to believe if we're going to see the death of anger in our own lives? Number one, it's the simple phrase, you don't know our right hand from our left. Now some scholars say that 120,000 who don't know the right hand from their left is a reference to children who don't know anything. But history, we know enough from history to know that the population of Nineveh at this time was not big enough for 120,000 children to be in the city. So when God talks about 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left hand, he's talking about all the people in the city of Nineveh. And what he's saying is they don't know right from wrong. They don't, they, they don't know their right hand from their left hand. They have this self-deception. What they think is right is wrong. What they think is wrong is right. And this is true also of you and I. We do not often know our right hand from our left hand. I know there's like an inner lawyer inside of you right now saying, no, hold on, I, I know right and wrong. I was raised right. I know when things should be. But he's saying here there is a people who apart from God's grace and mercy do not know their right hand from their left. You know, you know, well, that's the Old Testament. But let's go to the New Testament. As Jesus is dying on the cross and he prays for the people who are crucifying him, what does he pray? He says, Father, forgive them. Why? Because they do not know 
what they're doing. And so here is the first truth that you and I have to grab hold of if we're gonna put death, if we're gonna put our anger to death, is that you and I don't know our right hand from our left hand. And here's, here's Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, says this. A human being is not someone who once in a while makes a mistake, and God is not someone who once in a while forgives. Human beings are always sinning, and God is always forgiving, because God is love. So when we believe in our hearts, apart from God's grace and mercy, I don't know my right hand from my left. The Bible says that our hearts are desperately and deceptively wicked. We don't know. We don't even recognize our need from God. If God doesn't pour his grace and mercy on us, and for every moment of our lives, we're going to be those who don't know our right hand from our left. And as you begin to believe this truth, here's what it does. It begins to keep you, it will keep you humble. It'll keep you from being arrogant and prideful. And here's something I've learned in life. It's really hard to have a heart filled with humility and anger at the same time. Try it. It's hard to have your heart filled with humility and anger at the same time. Humility will drive out anger and anger will drive out humility because anger is basically me saying I know best and it's not going my way and so I'm angry. We're those who don't know our right from our left. But then the second phrase that we have to believe is what God says, should I not have compassion on them? See, even though we're those who don't know our right hand from our left hand, God had compassion on us. He sent his son Jesus to give his life as a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice upon the cross for us. So if you're a Christian here this morning and someone says, what does it mean to be a Christian? Here's what you can say. It means two things. It means I don't know my right hand from my left hand apart from God's grace. But it also means this, he had compassion on me. He had compassion on me. And just like Jonah couldn't take credit for the plant, you and I can't take credit for God's compassion. And we can't take credit for his grace. And we can't take credit for his mercy. And so who are we if we put our faith and trust in Jesus? Our identities are we are the ones who have received God's mercy and grace. And it's the only way to live free. This truth that he's had compassion on us, you know what it keeps us? It keeps us hopeful. So believing I'm the one who doesn't know my right hand from my left hand keeps us humble, but knowing that God had compassion on us keeps us hopeful. And hopeful and anger do not work together. Hope will drive out anger or anger will drive out hope. And so what we need is humility, what we need is hope. That's the death of anger. When our hearts are filled with humility, we don't know our right hand from our left hand, but they're filled with hope. He had compassion on us. He loved us. Now in this story, Jonah walks outside the city of Nineveh and every single step he takes, you know what he's wishing? For the destruction of the city and all the people in that city. That's what he wants to see. That's what he's willing. 900 years later, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walks outside the city of Jerusalem. And with every step he's taking, you know what he's about? He's willing to be destroyed so that we won't. He's willing to be destroyed so that God will save us from our destruction. Jesus did this so that those who don't know their right hand from their left hand could experience his compassion and not condemnation. The last thing I wanna say this morning is this. Let Jesus' life, let his death, let his resurrection, let his love for you, let his purposes for you, let his choosing of you, let his securing and keeping of you fill your hearts this morning with humility and hope so that anger can die inside of you as humility and hope grow 
and find a place to grow and strengthen you. Let's pray together.